We have a short passage to read this morning. Short passage is going to be verses 9 and 10 of Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has been describing the practice of righteousness, the practice of a religious life. What should it look like and how ought it to be different than those who would practice religion in perhaps a different kind of sense? So whether you know it or not, you are religious. You have habits. You are practicing right now to become the person that you're becoming. That's the reality of all life. Your beliefs are influencing and impacting how you act. Your desires, the thing that you want the most, those desires are shaping what you pursue and what your mind is centered on and how you spend your time and how you spend the things that you have. This religious practice is unavoidable. And Jesus says, so when you do these things, do them in this way. Avoid hypocrisy. Have integrity between what is inside and your desires and what you're thinking and what you're trusting in and the way that you act. That's been the the framework now that is going to be used to introduce this one aspect of our righteous life. When you pray, Jesus says, and he says to avoid a couple things, don't be like those who love to go and be seen in the streets for their elaborate, wonderful, high-sounding prayers. They will have their reward. And he says, don't be like those who just bundle up a ton of words and speak really fast, like the micro-machines guy. Do you guys ever remember that commercial? When I was a kid, I spoke really fast. Jesus says, don't just speak really fast and hope to be heard because of your many, many words. Instead, and this is where we're turning now, instead, and then he introduces what is known as the Lord's Prayer. So I'm going to read just the first two verses of this Lord's Prayer. We're avoiding hypocrisy. We're avoiding showy for the praise of others kind of praying. We're avoiding just babbling on in an attempt to to pile up an impressive resume of prayer. And instead, we want to learn from the heart and the life of Jesus. He's going to teach us how to pray. So this is the ninth verse and the tenth verse of Matthew chapter six. It says this, pray then like this. Our father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's two short verses, so I'm going to read it again. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. My guess is that no matter your background, unless it was completely and utterly void of what I would even call sort of dominant Western religion, that in the midst of reading those words, there were something inside of you that said, I, I could finish this phrase. I, 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 there's a bit of memorization that goes on here. The reality is, is that this section of, of Scripture on teaching on prayer has been used vitally in the history of the church. And no matter what tradition you come from within Christianity, this is likely something that you've heard and rehearsed and known to some degree. Probably in the early 2000s, maybe, maybe 99 to 2001, I lost track somewhere there. One of the first times that I ever got to, to teach through the Bible, to preach in a church setting. And I say in a church setting because I'd done missionary stuff and I I knew how to preach the gospel in a place where I was ignored completely on a busy street somewhere. 
But this was like the first, one of the first times ever that I was invited in and stood up at a pulpit. It was at Trinity Lutheran Church in Manville, North Dakota. Trinity Lutheran Church had existed for 75 to 100 years. My grandparents had grown up there. My grandfather had anyway. It was the kind of church that you could walk through the halls and see all the confirmation pictures stretching back to the 40s. And so if you walked there just within a few short steps, you could see my grandfather there in his gleaming white confirmation gown and then take a few steps down the hall and see my mom in the same room, the same kind of gown at her confirmation. It was a sturdy place that in many ways was insulated from a lot of the greater doctrinal and I would say difficult diversions from the faith within Lutheranism. They eventually pulled out of the different associations that they had because they continued to teach Scripture faithfully. The building that I got to teach in was, in many ways, a labor of love. Members of the church, including my grandfather, who farmed during the summer and then in the winter, gave himself to building, many times by hand, this new church building for them to worship in. And so it was a great privilege for me as a child who attended there on and off as a kid, and then every Christmas Eve service burned my hands with their candles to be invited to teach at this church. And I felt, whether I was youthful and rebellious or perhaps felt compelled by God, I desired to teach on the Lord's Prayer. The reason I taught on it is because I was struck by two things. One, I loved the way that Trinity Lutheran Church used the Lord's Prayer every single week. It inspired me. The tradition that I grew up in, that my parents had begun attending, had eschewed all high church kind of stuff. They wanted to run from tradition as far as possible. And so I would go to this little Lutheran church and I would hear people say things all together. And some part of me thought, these people are cool. They know things, and they use these kind of prayers, and so I was inspired, and I admired them, and yet at the same time, I was afraid for them, because I saw in the lives of many who had been there for 50, 60, 70, 80 years, a rote routine, and I wanted to help them, not to get rid of tradition. Remember, the answer to dead tradition is not to kill tradition, but to make it alive. We want breathing frameworks. And so when I get invited there around this time, and I'm brash and young and late teenish, early 20s, I stand up and I say, let's read the Lord's Prayer. And I tell them that what they ought to do is not do the very thing that Jesus says to avoid. You see, it's funny. Jesus says, here's what you should avoid. Don't just say a bunch of words hypocritically, but instead pray like this. And it strikes me that oftentimes because of pure and rote memorization, we use the Lord's Prayer exactly how Jesus says, do not do that. I hope I was helpful, like any of us who have ever taught anything, especially in the first few times that we've done it. There are many parts of it, I'm sure, that would be utterly cringeworthy. But I had great conversations with my grandfather afterward. And we talked through, what did it mean to pray then like this? What is Jesus asking us? What is he instructing? What is he telling us ought to be done when we come to these words? If it's not to simply go through the motions and memorize it, and again, I want you to hear me correctly, I believe that memorizing and using a form of prayer is a beautiful thing to do. The question becomes, how do we avoid making this 
something that is mindless and moves us further away from prayer rather than deeper into it? That's the real question. And so I want to offer a few suggestions. It says, as I have done, pray then like this. He gives us one address to start in the structure of the prayer and then three requests. There are two, three, two lists of three requests in the Lord's Prayer. People have noted the structure of the prayer is an address and then two different things. The first, these first three requests we're going to look at today concern the Father, concern God in heaven. It's an upward set of requests followed by an earthly or horizontal set of requests, an internal need, a petition. But the first three things, the way we order ourselves in prayer, the first three things after the address concern God himself. And so let's consider, Jesus says, I think one of the first things you need to do as you address God in prayer is you need to answer the question, who am I praying to and how do I address these words? First thing is he says, pray our. There's a collective identity in our relationship with God. One of the great gifts of coming together as the church. And I think one of the great balancing bits of Jesus' teaching here is to avoid what may have been the temptation because he just said, when you pray, go off in in the closet alone and be in secret and pray to your Father who sees in secret. So you may interpret that to mean, all I need is myself and Jesus. I just need to go get private, and that's what God requires of me. But we note that he teaches then to pray like this, our, which immediately invites us to recognize that God has given us brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are a collective, that there is a kind of access that we have to the Father that is not ours alone. It is not unique to you, but is shared by the great growing family that God has come to gather. Our. We pray with a collective instinct, not only individually. Our. Then he says, Father, which is, has been a theme already of the Sermon on the Mount, this idea that we could address the God in heaven as Father. If you collected all of the grandiose statements of Scripture concerning God, it would be overwhelming. God is a kind of being who, according to Job, hangs the earth on nothing. God is a type of being who dwells in unapproachable light. God is a kind of being whose perfections know no end. God is a kind of being who is inscrutable in his ways and his beauty and his goodness. God is a kind of being who is transcendent above all things. He alone dwells as creator above the creature-creator divide. God is so powerful, according to Scripture, that a mere sound of his voice can break and snap in half the greatest of the trees of the earth. God is so majestic and high and lifted up that a mere moment in His presence makes those fall as if dead before Him. God is so grandiose, so big, so beyond that a simple word from His voice causes the cosmos to come alive from darkness to light. God is so amazing that He can create all that lives and breathes and moves and swims and flies by the mere imaginati- his imagination being sent forth into the world by his breath. We could say all of this concerning God, the most high picture you could imagine, and Jesus says also, and, Father. The great God who is transcendent is also imminent in a familial kind of way that is hard to comprehend. 
The word that Jesus uses here is our Abba, which is often been attempted to be described. It has some familiarity to it. It's probably not quite as drastic as daddy, but it certainly is a phrase that you would use within a family to address your father in a more intimate way than someone who's saying, bring me your father. Jesus says that grandiose God is inviting you to pray with familiarity. Adoption. The fact that we've been received into the family that God has given us is central to the life of the Christian. And asserting and stepping into the rights and privileges of those who have been transferred from darkness to light and therefore brought into a family where the great grandiose God is now has given His attention to you with love and affection as a father. This is one of the greatest realities of new life in Christ. So Jesus teaches us to say our, collective, that's our identity together. Second, and perhaps one of the most profound words that Jesus offers here is the word Father. Our Father. This has already been a bit of a shock, but if you said what marks Jesus' teaching, it's his insistence on calling the God of the universe Father. This is a phrase, a statement that would have been somewhat shocking to anyone listening. What he says is, that the God who is in charge of all things, full of power and beauty, who is transcendent beyond description, is also imminent and desires to be known and addressed by you and me with the intimacy of Father. Now this teaching on prayer is going to require some imagination. You see, faith is going to be built up all the way through the entirety of the thing. And here's what I mean by that. Every experience that we have here in this world is tainted by the fallenness of the world. So it ought to be, I believe in the equation of things, if I say to you, you can address God as your father, the great desire and the thing that may need to be imagined is that you would say, oh, father, that is, the, that is one of the grandest of all familial relationships. And when I think of Father, I think of sweetness and strength and kindness and presence and provision and protection. When I think of Father, I have overjoyed to run to Him. The reality is, for many of us, that has not been our experience of Father. And so, we pray with the hope and the trust and the faith that fuels an imagination of being restored to all of the best things that God has put into the world. Even the best of our fathers are fallen. And Jesus says, this God of the universe is a father. And he will be a father to you in an idealized sense that is beyond understanding. Adoption. The idea that we have been grafted into this family ought to be one of the greatest rights and privileges of a Christian's life. The Bible is full of all of the ways that God is beyond us. And you've perhaps heard stories that the name of God was often very rarely even spoken in fear of misspeaking it. The tetragrammaton, the idea of these four levers or letters, YHWH, would often be written out very carefully because of fear. He was to be seen as others. And God is certainly holy. If you start at the beginning of the Bible, 
and you want to describe how God is transcendent, there would be a lot to read. Do you know that God alone exists before all time? He was in the beginning before there was a beginning. Do you know that God alone, by the word of his power, can speak and his very breath causes light to shine from darkness? Do you know that God is so powerful in his creative mind that his mere words can set into being all that lives and breathes and flies and swims? Do you know that Scripture says that God is so far beyond us that His voice is powerful and could shatter in a moment the strongest of our structures and trees? Did you know that God dwells in what is called ineffable light, ununderstandable, unapproachable light? You know that Job, in trying to describe this God who's so far behind us, says that God is a kind of God who hangs the earth on nothing. That is how big and grand God is. He is beyond us. He is so holy that one moment in His presence causes all who come into that place to fall down as if dead. God is so grand and so big and so beyond us that the Apostle Paul, who was ushered up into a form of heaven itself, who was blinded and met with Jesus Himself, said, you know what God is like? He is inscrutable. We cannot understand. We can barely grasp who He is. God is so beyond us that Moses, when he dared to say, show me your glory, had to be hidden in a rock and could only see the trailing edge of the robe of God's glory. If you desire for God to be transcendent and big and you turn through the pages of your Bible, you'll find a lot there. And, not in competition with, and Jesus says, that same God who is beyond, that same transcendent being, is imminent. He is intimate. He is here with us as Father. And in the same way that you would walk on a shaky path as a two-year-old and Dad holds your shoulder, your Father is there with you. And in the same way that you are provided for at your table, your Father provides for you. In the same way that your Father works and works hard to bring about change in the world, your Father is working for you. This right and privilege to call God, that transcendent being beyond all description, the word Abba, that's the word that Jesus uses. It's a word of familial comfort. Probably not quite like daddy in a too casual sense, but certainly much more casual and familial than just father. This is This is dad. And Jesus says, you have access like that. What a word. Father. More than our father, this address. Who do we write our prayers to? Who's on the envelope? As a counterbalance, it says this father, this familial, intimate one, is in heaven. Commenting on this, Charles Spurgeon once said, It is good for us to remember that we may speak boldly with God. We can speak boldly with Him as you would as a child going to your dad who you know loves you. You can speak boldly with God, but He is still in heaven and we are upon the earth, so we should avoid presumption. Peter says that this God who is beyond all things and says, come to me, I'm your father. If we call Him Father, 1 Peter says that we ought to conduct ourselves with fear and trembling in this life. 
The reality is, is that our Father we have access to, He sees us, He cares for us, He provides for us, but He is still in a place of power. And He is to be respected. So, intimate respect seems to be the balance that's here. This is a good counterbalance. Our Father who's in heaven, a counterbalance to the true statements that our Father can be accessible and near to us. Jesus is going to say, I've called you friends. The idea of Abba may lead you to say, Daddy, or something like that. It could be that you grew up in such a starched religious atmosphere that you thought to yourself, when I came to know Jesus, being familiar with Him changed everything. I wanted a relationship with God, not just a bunch of routines. And I would say that that instinct should always remain. You can come boldly to your Father. At the same time, we should probably avoid the worst excesses of casualness in approaching Him. I'm going to use a very modern, what the kids are saying kind of way. If you prayed and threw in a bunch of bruh in there, you may be missing the totality of the picture Jesus is giving you. So avoiding the casualness of, I really just like need some stuff, bro. And if you're talking to God, you maybe have missed the point here. You have a father who loves you, but he is in a place of power. There's a place of respect to be brought before him. And this twofold reality of how can it possibly be that we have access to a person who is so transcendent in a place of power, he's in heaven and we're on earth, and yet he loves us and is attentive to us as his child. I thought about this one time when I saw a picture of JFK's son in the Oval Office. Have you ever seen these pictures? He had little children when he went to the Oval Office. I don't know if you knew this, but it's legal for a president to be under 80. So, sorry. <laughs> anyway, so JFK, was, he was young. He was young and he had little children. And maybe it just struck you. I remember seeing a meeting going on in the Oval Office, a bunch of important people, all stuffy. I mean, the world hangs in the balance in this place. It is the very seat of power of the world. And there's one of the little kids crawling under the desk. Or perhaps later on, a more recent example, I saw a picture once of the, the Bush girls teaching Obama's little girls how to slide down the side of a staircase in the back hall of the White House. And I imagined these girls who had grown up in this place being right next to, perhaps on the other wall itself, matters of world economy being hammered out. Calls of threats and war and militaries and the the chief commander of the greatest military strength the world has ever known is on the other side of the wall trying to command things, and he may be dealing with the sounds and noises of little girls squealing as they slide down a staircase. Tim Keller once said, the only person who would dare wake up a king at 3 a.m. in the morning for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access with God. God is transcendent. He is far beyond, and yet He has invited us, even in all of His power, to address Him. And He says, I'm attentive to you in the same way that a father would be to a child. This great reality by itself ought to stir our prayer life to new heights. What are you trying to tackle on your own? What stresses have been piling up? 
What unspoken sadnesses are you carrying with you? The Father is there for you. The Father seeks to know. Our Father in heaven. What what a pregnant phrase. Don't heap up empty words. Well, here's some full ones, Jesus says. So if we've learned our address, who do we write on the envelope to send our prayers to? He then begins by reorienting and helping us with three requests to show us how we ought to frame our worldview in coming to our Father who is in heaven. These requests are simple and they're easily understood from what we read. Request one, a hallowed name. Request two, a kingdom come. And request three, a will to be done. A hallowed name, a kingdom come, and a will to be done. Now, I don't know about you, but these seem like the most natural things in the world to pray about and to be worried about. You know what I'm often most worried about? My reputation. My name. The opinion of others of me. If I'm successful, if I'm making it. If I made the team, if I'm in the room, if I got the promotion. You know what I'm often worried about? I'm worried about what I control. I'm worried about who I control. I'm worried about how much stuff I've gathered. I'm worried about how many things I can keep for myself. I'm worried about my influence on others. You know what I'm often worried about? I'm worried about whether or not my sense of what's best in the world happens or not. I want the things that I want to take place and I want to complain about when they are not taking place. In other words, what I want and what I'm going to be living with and what I'm tempted to do in coming to the Father who's in heaven is I'm tempted to to be concerned with a name and to be concerned with a kingdom and to be concerned with a will. And Jesus knows that. He took on human flesh and he lived as we live And so he says, when you start to pray, there's going to be some things that need to be set straight right away. Let's organize our priorities. If you've seen the Father who is transcendent and yet imminent and near, then let's start like this. Hallowed be not my name, but your name. This continues the personal reality of God. He has a name. God is a person whose name denotes his character and beauty and goodness and deeds God is not a force in the world. Again, cheesy again, but the prayer is not, may the force be with you, but may the Father listen to you. You understand? You guys ever watch that Star Wars stuff? It's great. It's amazing. The last time I mentioned Star Wars, I I did not praise it endlessly, and I've gotten a lot, a lot of bad reviews. My my personal Yelp uh, reviews have been down. God is not an impersonal force in the world. He is not the energy that exists through all living things, according to Avatar. God is a being, a person with a name. If you did a study of his name through the Old Testament, you would find out very quickly that the reason we come alongside God and pray that his name would be hallowed, it's because this is very central to who God is. He acts for the sake of his name. He places his name on us and says, 
we ought to live in a way that glorifies the fact that we carry His name. The end of all things is the name of God being proclaimed and honored through all of the world. And so what we do is we address this Father and we set aside our reputations and we say, I want to be concerned first and foremost that God's reputation, that when His name is named, it is named with dignity, not disdain. How much of our prayers are concerned with or moved to pray that God would be creative and powerful in the faming of His name, not ours. Here's a for instance in our world. Do we pray most often, God, make Four Oaks a success. Make our church a success. Now, we want to be well-known and liked rather than hated. Everyone wants that. But behind that, we should say, can we replace some of this thinking with, God, whatever you do with us, whatever happens, if we exist in this little 501c3 moment of humanity or not, let your name be magnified in all of the earth. And let the character and beauty and goodness and deeds that come with your name be put on display in such a way that the nations stop and take notice. Reputation is surrendered in prayer. Second, Jesus says, as you're getting reoriented to the things that you're praying, a second request to start with is your kingdom to come. We ought to be seeking actively. He's going to say later in verse 33 of Matthew chapter 6 that of all the things that we do, we should seek first the kingdom and His righteousness. We seek the expansion of God's rule into all of life. His testimony concerning the end of the world is that one day all things will be put right. That we should long for and pray when everything that is unjust is made just when everything that is disordered will be made ordered, everything that is sad and full of death becomes joy and full of life. What we see under God's feet in His rule now, we rejoice in and submit to. And everything that is not yet under His rule, we say, Lord, hasten the day. That's the kind of praying that we ought to be doing. For God's kingdom to come, not ours. Now, this may seem odd, Remember how I said earlier that father, even the best of our fathering is tainted by the the world we live in, by the fallenness of the world? I think this is another category of that. How many of us willingly, by nature, pray for someone else to control us more? How many of us would say, you know the thing the the world needs, I just long for? A good hierarchy. I just want commands and a boss I just want more laws and restrictions. So when we pray a kingdom come, we want a king. We're praying for a dictator. And the reality is is that for many of us, our experience of authority has been tainted by the fallenness and the fallibility of the world. So when we think about a kingdom coming, we may say to ourselves, anything but. But Jesus asks us to reimagine what is possible. To reimagine a world where the rightful king of all things brings about a sense of hierarchy and putting things into place that leads to not more restriction, but more freedom. A time where 
one person's influence and control of all things doesn't lead to a kind of chaos and disorder because of the sinfulness of that person, but rather more order and more joy than we could ever imagine. We pray, God, everything ought to be under your rule. This means our material resources, our vocations, our jobs, our families under the rule of God. A third request, Jesus says, pray that his will would be done. We surrender the control of our lives, the outcome of our lives, to our Father. We admit that you do not need to, nor could you, actually control the world around you or yourself. To pray, let your will be done, is a way to say to yourself and to others around you that God's purposes are beyond what you may know or be able to grasp. And not only is that okay, but it is desirable. Whatever is the most hurtful, painful, deepest why of your life right now, Jesus teaches us to remind ourselves in prayer that the most deep hurts and confusions of our lives would not be better if we could step in and fix it. That our timing is not better than God's timing. Our purposes are not better than His purposes. We are essentially offering up to God His Godness by praying that His will would be done. We are admitting to ourselves that there are things that we may not understand. It's been said that if you worship a God or pray to a God who always happens to agree with you or only does things that are perfectly understandable to you, that you may not be getting closer to God but much, 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 much further from Him because you've made Him up. The presence of whys or difficulty in life, though they're real and we should care for one another in our burdens, we should continue to bring these things to the Father. The presence of those things is not to bring doubt that we have God wrong. It may be evidence that we are fallible and fallen and don't know everything, and we might just have God perfectly right. Because His will is beyond ours. So how do we address prayer? We've gotten the address, our Father in heaven. What do we start by praying for? Well, we shift our view of reputation and name. We give him the control of all things, so a kingdom and an influence, and we ask that his purpose would be done, not ours. And ultimately, we do these things because Jesus taught us, yes, but also because he modeled this for us. Jesus is teaching us on prayer because he is a prayer. Jesus is not offering his expert advice on something he knows nothing about. So in other words, he's the anti-Twitter, right? Something happens on Twitter, oh, the space shuttle went up into the sky and X, Y, Z. All of a sudden, there's 17,000 rocket scientists commenting on it underneath. I don't know if you have a tendency to do this or not, but we often are tempted to throw in opinions about things we know nothing about. Jesus is not doing that. You know that in Luke's gospel, in Luke 11, when he introduces this section, he points out the fact that the disciples actually ask Jesus, will you teach us to pray? Imagine that. 
Imagine having walked with Jesus for years, all that he's done. Do you know that Jesus could take a barrel of water and turn it into wine? Did you know that he could take a couple loaves of bread and feed thousands and thousands and thousands? Do you know that Jesus could make blind people see? Do you know that he could fix legs better than a splint? Do you know that Jesus could be transfigured in a blaze of glory on a mountaintop? Do you know that Jesus could confound the best teachers of the day? Imagine you had seen all of this eyewitness testimony, and you have a moment to side with that Jesus, and you say to me, Lord, teach me to fill in the blank. What kind of spell do you want? All right, Jesus, here's the thing. I've seen you do this a few times. I really want that deal where I send the demons into the pigs. Is that what you'd ask for? I mean, he's done some amazing stuff. The disciples say to Jesus in Luke 11, Lord, teach us to pray. Why do they say this? Why fill in the blank with prayer? Because Jesus was known for secret prayer. The reality is that the power of the Lord's prayer, for those who would have heard it, came not only that it's the Lord's prayer, but that it was taught by a praying Lord. I know it's a play on words. The power of the Lord's prayer is that it's given to us by a praying Lord. I want you to just note a few of the examples. When you read your New Testament, we could start to notice this more frequently. Here's one example in Matthew chapter 14. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. Jesus was gaining a reputation. The crowds were coming. They were likely chanting his name and he said, I need to go reorient myself. I'm going to go to pray. In Matthew chapter 26, coming upon the darkest moment of his whole life, facing the cross, Jesus went with them and says to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Now we turn to Mark. Mark's gospel, at the beginning, back at the beginning of his ministry, in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. What was Jesus marked by? Scripture is going to say, as was his custom. It says, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. In Luke chapter 9, it says, now it happened that when he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, well, who do the crowds say that I am? It happened when he was praying How did Jesus meet temptation in the beginning of his ministry? He went out into the wilderness and he prayed and the spirits came to revive him. How did he meet with fame and reputation? With his kingdom expanding, he stole away to pray. What did Jesus most pray? Well, we're going to find out later in John 17, which we'll close the service with, that he prayed that God's name would be made famous in all the earth. What did Jesus pray when his will, his purposes were coming into this grinding moment of tension coming to his death? Well, he demonstrated. He was a praying Lord who said, not my will be done, but yours. Jesus is simply inviting us into the lively relationship that he has with the Father, that he has enjoyed from eternity past, that he was empowered by and enjoyed in his time on the earth, and that he is going to usher us into for eternity future. Pray then like this. 
he says. And perhaps the last years of his life are coming into view. Jesus enjoyed a kind of relationship with the Father that led to him needing to pray. This is an amazing thought. Have you ever thought to yourself that Jesus was perfectly righteous, but he cheated? Ever thought that? Well, sure. I mean, he was God, so. But have you ever thought about how striking it is that Jesus, who, yes, was God in flesh, 100% fully God and fully man, that God in all his perfection, having taken on human form, prayed not less frequently, but more? That the Son, whose relationship with the Father was just about as sturdy as it possibly could be, spoke with his Father more, not less? How much more then, those of us who are at the very beginning of being molded into the image of Jesus, who have the lively and active Spirit of God, but certainly are not glorious in godliness, how much more should we be moved to step into this great privilege of prayer? I'm going to read John 17, 1 to 6. And I'm going to pray for us as we close. Again, John's gospel, which we hadn't yet looked at from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, records at the end of his life an entire chapter of what? Him praying. I want you to note the themes. What moved Jesus? How did he live? When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, how does he address him? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Why? That the son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you, whom you have given. Whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He's saying that there's been fame and there's been a kingdom and there's been a will from eternity past. Bring it now. And then verse 6, he summarizes his ministry. He says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Jesus made it his purpose to manifest the name of God so that the kingdom of God might be preached and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray together now like this.